I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Anne McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table. Compass point, 37.39 degrees north, 5.99 degrees west, Spain, Andalusia, Sevilla. I've always been fascinated by Spain especially by the Iberian Peninsula's southern quadrant ever since my first visit there in 1963. My fascination grew after 1968 when I spent a month in Madrid at the Instituto de Cultura Hispánica studying Spanish art and folklore, and it expanded even more after I read the 1968 masterwork by James Michener of all people, Iberia. My Spain goes back to the bad old days of my early visits when the country was still under the domination of Franco's regime, and the dreaded Guardia Civil roamed the streets in pairs, packs on their backs, their scowling faces topped with tricorn patent leather hats, like those worn by the Spanish soldiers in the 17th century. In those days, the Guardia Civil were feared and symbols of political repression. The great Spanish poet, Frederico de Garcia Lorca, who may have been killed by them, called them jorbados de la noche con almas de charol, hunchbacks of the night with patent leather soles, an allusion to their backpacks and their patent leather hats. The Guardia has changed. Today, the uniforms have been updated, and the Civil Guard, Guardia Civil, is just that, a Civil Guard. In fact, it's one of the first in Europe to admit an openly gay couple. Now that would seriously shock Garcia Lorca. Spain has changed. My Spain is as contemporary as tomorrow, yet it remains a place where the past is always present. My Spain is probably my favorite creolized country in Europe. Creolized, I hear you say. It's interesting to think of Spain as creolized, but most of us tend to forget that for more than 700 years, the country was dominated by Moors, many of whom came from the African continent. During Spain's Moorish centuries, 
the country was a haven of intellectual tolerance where Christians, Jews, and Muslims coexisted in ways that are especially enviable today in the 21st century. The result of the Moors' more than 700-year occupation turns up in a myriad of ways. It shows up in the architecture, where churches, like Cordova's Cathedral, boast Moorish interiors that were transformed from mosques, leaving pentimento of an earlier time. It's there in houses that turn a blind eye to the streets and face inward to interior courtyards and patios, blooming with flowers and tinkling with the water that is a hallmark of the Moorish culture that grew in the desert. It turns up in the language, where Arabic word roots can still be seen in rivers called Guadalquivir and Guadalrama, and in words for essentials like olives known as acetunas, from the Spanish zitun. It turns up in the deep song of the Cantejondo of flamenco, where it at times seems that a Muslim muezzin had taken a lesson from a Mississippi blues man. And it certainly turns up in food. Traditional Spanish dishes like paella owe their use of rice to the Moors, who brought it with them from Africa. And it's also there in the use of almonds in drinks like horchata and in an almond-garlic gazpacho that is simply beyond delicious. I readily admit that my favorite section of Spain is perhaps the most touristic section of the country, one that is marked with images of castanets and clicking heels, with bullfighters traje de luces and women wearing high tortoiseshell combs and mantillas to mass on Holy Friday while carrying fans and rosaries. This is Andalusia, the section of the country named for Al-Andalus, the glory that was Moorish Spain. Tourist imagery notwithstanding, Andalusia is eternal, and its capital is Seville. Sevilla. In 1968, Michener wrote in Iberia, Sevilla is ancient and as a city of importance nearly 2,000 years older than Madrid. It was a major Roman center and near its present site stand the excavated ruins of a considerable city named Italica, but Roman occupation of the area left little imprint on Sevilla, although Sevilla made a considerable impression on Rome, having contributed two of the principal Caesars, Hadrian and Trajan. Sevilla was also a major capital of the Moors, having been occupied by them in one capacity or another for 536 years. Yet today, one finds in the city even fewer of the Muslim memories that make Cordoba and Granada such noble testaments to Moorish influence in Spanish history. To Americans, though, whether from north or south, Sevilla is of special interest because although the colonies of Spain were conquered by Extremadura, they were governed from Sevilla. The cargoes of gold from Peru and Mexico were brought up the Guadalquivir to the docks where the bullring now stands, and the nobles who were to rule the distant lands, either well or poorly, sailed with their commissions from this port. Scholars have long believed that one day the inexhaustible depositories of Sevilla will produce hitherto unknown documents relating to the early history of the Americas, and they expect maps to be uncovered that will alter our present understandings. For to Sevilla came reports from all parts of the world. Here also centered the branches of the church dealing with America, and the 
administrative cadres, both civil and military, responsible for the actual governing. Sevilla might properly be termed the historic capital of the Americas. During some three centuries, it was the nerve center which controlled all. If a stranger could inspect but one city in Spain, and if he wished to acquire, therefore, a reasonable comprehension of what the nation as a whole was like, I think he would be well advised to spend his time in Sevilla. For this city, even though it is too individualistic to be called a microcosm of the whole, is nevertheless a good introduction to classical Spanish life. Thus spoke Michener in 1968. Sevilla is the city of Carmen's tobacco factory and Don Juan's seductions. It is where Columbus sailed down the Guadalhivir to head to the New World and where his gold returned. In short, Sevilla is the beating heart of Andalusia. Sevilla is the city where I first learned how to tell a good tasca or tapas bar from a bad one in the days before every restaurant in New York City was calling small plates tapas. The better the tasca in those wonderfully unsanitary days, the more detritus on the floor. There were shells from prehistoric-looking pesebres or barnacles, toothpicks from pinchos of juicy tender steak, pits from olives, and more piled up in an archaeologist's delight with Precambrian layers of tapas past evident to anyone who had interest and a strong enough stomach to dig. But it was also a good way to know where to stop. It was in Sevilla that I first fell in love with true gazpacho, in some nondescript small restaurant on the oh-so-moorish-looking Sierpes, the winding street named for serpents because of its curves. It was roseate in color, and with a selection of minced items, bell pepper, onions, and freshly made croutons served on the side to add at will. This soup will always be my gazpacho. Prepared from stale slices of bread and the freshest tomatoes, it could be and used to be made in a mortar and pestle long before the invention of blenders. It bears absolutely no resemblance to the blended slurry of vegetables, the sad blended slurry of vegetables, that passes for gazpacho in way too many places, both here and abroad. I no longer remember where it really started, but it was probably in Seville that I developed a lifelong love for the fortified wine that comes from Jerez de la Frontera on the Mediterranean coast, and that goes by the English corruption of the town name, Sherry. In Sevilla, I'm sure, I learned that along with the Copita de Vino Tinto, the little glass of red wine that is my beverage birthmark, and the Sidra Asturiana that I drank occasionally in Madrid, I liked Sherry. I know it all began with Tio Pepe, Sherry's Uncle Joe. I was fond of it, but I soon discovered that I loved 
Finos, especially the manzanillas that come from San Lucar de Barameda and that have a faint sea taste of the salt air. None of Poe's Amontillado for me until after dinner. Sevilla is eternal. Because it is eternal and unchanging in good ways, I know, therefore, that there are orange blossoms blooming in the Patio de los Naranjas, outside of the Cathedral of Sevilla, that's located on the edge of the former Jewish quarter. Their scent perfumes the air and reminds all that soon it will be Holy Week. Decades have passed, but I will never forget the Holy Week that I spent there years ago in a bed and breakfast that had windows that looked out on the square in front of Seville's cathedral, where the bell tower was once the minaret of a mosque. Holy Week in Seville is one of life's must-do events for anyone who loves the combination of high pageantry and religious mystery. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, every year, the city is transformed into a living monument to Christian faith. There, for the entire week, I heard pasadobles and dirges that the brass bands played as they accompanied the marching penitents called Nazareños and the holy images. These holy images are venerated wooden statuary, many of them centuries-old figures depicting the life of Christ from the entrance into Jerusalem until crucifixion and entombment. There are also many, many virgins of multiple attributes. All are removed from their sanctuaries, dressed in magnificent finery and arrayed in precious jewels, and paraded through the streets on floats called pasos once a year. There are no small floats. One can weigh over a metric ton, and each is carried by a highly coordinated group in a stately pavan. Watching the pasos go by, you know where the gold of the Indies went. There are more than 440 pounds of filigree silver in the paso of Jesus de Pasión alone. Holy Week harks back to the displays of religious fervor during the dreaded Spanish Inquisition, and some of the holy statues that are paraded through the streets hark back to those days when the culmination of the event would be the burning of heretics at the stake, not a procession around the cathedral. There is an otherworldly aspect to this week that reminds one of Spain's deep religious faith. Some of the penitents carry heavy crosses and walk barefooted for the entire route that can last more than 14 hours. Others volunteer to bear the massive weight of the floats that carry the holy statuary through the streets. This job, up until 1973, was actually done by the stevedores from the docks. Many of the penitents still wear the traditional dress of the Inquisition, a hooded cloak that served as the inspiration for the dress of the Ku Klux Klan. The colors vary from each brotherhood or confradia, but whether deep purple velvet or light blue satin, they are seriously impressive. No words can describe the atavistic terror that I felt the first time that I crossed a group of them as they were heading down the narrow alleyways of the Santa Cruz district on their way to a parade. Holy Week begins slowly with daytime processions and gradually works its way up. On Holy Thursday, it has become de rigueur for women to adopt traditional dress 
and wear black dresses and high tortoiseshell combs topped with lace mantillas to mask. As the week begins to escalate to the fervor that is la madruga, the spiritually intense, emotionally charged moment of the nighttime parades that mark the night between Holy Thursday and Good Friday. La Madruga is the epicenter of Holy Week, and to see the processions then is to understand it all. The images leave their various sanctuaries after midnight and parade through the streets until well into the following day. The brotherhood that parades with El Silencio, the silence, dates back to 1340, is considered to be the city's oldest, and parades in silence. El Cristo de Gran Poder dates to 1431 and is perhaps the most venerated of the Christ figures. The virgins, though, carry the madruga. While the intense, at times gruesome realism of the Spanish Baroque pervades the imagery of the suffering Christ, complete with bleeding wounds dotted with rubies, the virgins are radiant, seemingly caught in moments of intense religious ecstasy like those described by the oso-Spanish Saint Teresa of Avila. The two stars of La Madruga are the Virgen de la Esperanza, called La Macarena, nothing to do with that silly lawn dance, and the Virgen de la Esperanza from Triana, who was traditionally venerated by the gypsies who lived in the neighborhood. Both have huge followings, and watching one of them leave or return to her sanctuary is a thrill of a lifetime experience. Delicately, with the bouncing shuffle that is typical of the lockstep movement of those bearing the pasos, they squeak through narrow archways and turn into tight streets, never grazing a wall. If you're very lucky, there will be a saeta, a vocal arrow, either sung spontaneously or performed by a paid soloist extolling the virgin. Cutting through the rumor of the crowd, the sung arrows are marks of special faith and usually greet the images as they leave from or return to their home sanctuaries. Then, the fervor of La Madruga moves into the calm of the processions of Good Friday and Saturday. And on Easter Sunday, church bells all over the city announce the resurrection and Holy Week's end for another year. Holy Week may end, but two weeks later, the party continues with Feria, the secular side of the diptych of festivities that make up spring in Seville. If Holy Week reminds of the country's religious underpinnings, Feria 
which actually began in 1292 and was reintroduced in 1867, celebrates the culture of Andalusia that has become totemic for all of Spain. It is marked with bullfights, parades of horse-drawn carriages, a park filled with tented cabanas called casetas, where families received guests with tapas and a welcoming glass of sherry. Following the solemnity of Holy Week, there is joy and a celebration of life in Feria, where on Good Friday women dress in black and wear mantillas. During Feria, it's all about flowers in the hair and flouncy dresses, hoop earrings, and flamenco, because the music of Feria is flamenco too. Not the saetas and dirges of Holy Week, but rather the sevillanas, the rhyming couplets of flamenco that are danced by professional and amateur alike in a celebration of spring and the joy of living that is feria. To experience springtime in Seville is to know the yang and yin of Spain, the somber and the sensual, the sacred and the oh-so-profane. It's riveting and exhilarating and always hard to pull away. But leave we must. En Sevilla que morir, hay que morir. Al la primavera, Sevilla toda entera, rosa de puro carmín, rosa de puro carmín, hay que morir. So until next time.